Well, it's wonderful to welcome Nancy here to Birkbeck and to celebrate her book, Fortunes of Feminism. Now, as uh, Nancy knows so well, we all reflect the time we enter politics, and she and I had the great good fortune to enter politics at the time when the left was extraordinarily rich and extraordinarily diverse in the late 1960s. A politics transiently so confident and also confidently so aggressively masculine, anti-war and so on, in voice, style and substance, despite the equal numbers of young bushy-tailed women such as us joining in all those marches on the streets in almost equal numbers with men round and about 1968. Something had to give. So, as we now tell our grandchildren, something had to give and that was the birth of women's liberation. Goodbye to all that was the startling voice of the American radical feminist and poet Robin Morgan as she occupied the left radical magazine Rat in January 1970. However, most of us newly born feminists, much of the time, especially in the UK, but also in the USA and elsewhere, were much less dismissive of the 60s utopian moment, however male it may have appeared, in particular of the thoughts of the new left, with its notions of building politics from below, the importance of culture and personal life in politics, alongside the significance of anti-imperialist struggles, anti-war protests and so on. In many ways, it was precisely the spirit of the new left, now rearticulated through feminism, mentioning gender at every turn, that was the fullest expression of new left politics, such as the May Day Manifesto or all the other things that uh, had appeared in the 60s. So, to my great delight, this does seem to be a moment, as Nancy suggests at the end of her talk and her book, in which the 70s, which for us, feminists was sort of the 60s, we had our 60s in the 70s, is now suddenly swinging back into fashion. There's even a move to try and revive Spare Rib, which was founded in 1972. So my delight, of course, because this was our decade, this was my decade anyway, and forever will seem the most exciting decade. That is, in, that is at the close of the 50s when we were busy campaigning ceaselessly for everything to change around issues of equality, personal liberation, community building, peace and international solidarity work. Everything was on our minds as we took to the streets and felt rather confident that perhaps, although we weren't so personally confident, but perhaps politically we could win. And for a while we did win certain things. So Jam Today was one of our favourite bands and expressed that spirit of the 1970s. Many of the men fell behind. The 60s songstress uh, um, Joan Byers sings of her old friend and lover Bob Dylan in 72. You left us marching on the road and said how heavy was the load when the struggle had barely, got, barely just begun. But there's still room for you, she says, with us. However, Bobby... Like many of those radical protests of the protesters of the 1960s, had fallen by the wayside and uh, were not still marching. Yet interestingly, this is the very same decade, the 1970s. Perhaps not coincidentally, because I'm saying this was women's decade. That's been declared so dull and boring afterwards. 
a time when almost nothing happened, a decade when the lights went out. The lights did go out, rather excitingly, as we objected to, and won that first miners' strike. Um, <coughs> so it's, it, it's as though women were not winning any victories and as though all our struggles from that decade can be forgotten. So to the extent that it's being remembered, for me, uh, that is a very nice thing. And it's being remembered, of course, because we're seeing struggles breaking out everywhere from Tahrir Square yesterday to Taksim Square today. For two years now, we've seen struggles breaking out. So this brings me to Nancy's book. Nancy is looking back over the last three, four decades, just as in uh, all my writing and in so many other people's writing, we've also looked back over those uh, decades, and she's chronicling the rise and shifts in feminist thought and activism over those decades, attentive to her roots in those egalitarian dreams of left radicalism from the late 60s, 1970s. What troubles her, as it's troubled so many other feminists of my generation, is the shifting fate, and for me, in particular, as I see it, the shifting representation of feminism itself. It's been clear for decades that capital it's capitalism itself wasted no time in incorporating certain voices and certain demands of feminism. Of feminism. Happy to advance some women, for instance, some professional women into new managerial positions, accepting that rape and violence against women were a bad thing, although not managing to prevent it, while by and large completely ignoring other feminist calls to make the workplace more compatible with domestic responsibilities, shortening the working day or all the various other demands that feminists made, or calls upon the state for far more democratically delivered and increased welfare provisions. All those things were off the agenda with defeat after defeat. Now, Nancy, in her writing over the years, adds to the ease of discussing all this, or to what she calls the grammar of feminism, by distinguishing a politics of recognition from a politics of redistribution. She agrees that the two intersect. Of course they intersect. It is those who are most um, uh, marginalised and demeaned in society, whether for gender, race, or reasons of sexuality, or whatever, who will be the most vulnerable to economic exploitation. Nevertheless, it's important to see, she argues, and I do agree with her, that it's at least analytically possible to distinguish between um, demands for recognition, demands against uh, cultural um, denigration, um, as well as looking at issues of, of exploitation. This is something um, taken from developments of Habermas and, and in particular, especially his disciple Axel Honneth, whom um, Nancy refers to and uh, also critiques. Fine. Her further point is that when in the 1980s, as we heard, the cultural politics of identity and recognition became more prominent in feminist theorising, this tended to replace a politics of redistribution as divisions between women, referred to today as intersectionality over race, ethnicity, sexuality, religion, and so on and so forth, came to the fore. 
And they came to the fore in rather conflictful and conflictive and very unpleasant ways, actually, in many uh, feminist sites. So it's this which leads her to suggest that in the second phase, Act Two of feminism, <clears throat> feminism itself can be seen as up to a point complicit with the concurrent rise of neoliberalism. Indeed, she argues that perhaps there's a secret, she suggests that perhaps there's a secret affinity between the two. And certainly it is true that the new spirit of market fundamentalism, where simply everything can be drawn into commercial circulation, the market has been most willing and usually able to sell back to us our distinct badges of identity. Uh, whether it's the pink pound or um, promoting girl power, freedom bras, whatever. Capitalism's all too happy to recognise differences, particularly if we'll buy up its emblems, it wants us to uh, buy to secure our identity, up to a point, so long as we organise it ourselves, organise our identities ourselves, and make little or no demands on the state. So Nancy's essays... Um, capture this, what becomes seen as by many the public face of feminism and what seemed to be prioritised at the cutting edge of the academy as it shifted towards talk about identities and differences, a, a sort of contradictory stress on, on the differences women shared at the same time as stressing all the differences between women. Now, this was a difficult thing to um, take on board. <coughs> Um, <clears throat> and, and it's this, she feels, which moves us away from talk of uh, redistribution, talk of equality. Now, all this is very compelling, although I somewhat diverge from Nancy in her description of exactly what was happening or, or exactly why this was happening in these years. To cut things short, I don't think that feminism or feminists overall simply gave up on struggles around equality or redistribution. Many of us didn't. There was in actuality always a plurality of competing feminist voices. Read any of my books or Sheila Rowbottom's books or many other people's books and you'll see that we're talking still about equality and redistribution at the same time as some of us are talking about um, identities, differences and so on. Uh, and that was true both in the theoretical and the activist domain. So what it makes me think about is the question of who gets heard and why, and what gets analysed and why. Because meanwhile, less widely aired feminists kept on discussing a whole host of new things um, around, uh, you know, and they could be found in the nooks and crannies of local government, obviously in the GLC, they worked in low pay units, they worked in NGOs, they were supporting women on picket lines. For instance, take the South All Black Sisters, formed in 1979, still going today. Were they working just around difference? No, they certainly were not working just around difference. Of course they were working around um, uh, the place of, of black women in their communities, the denigration of ethnic uh, <clears throat> minorities. They were also working around the particular exploitation of ethnic minorities, around housing, around um, the workforce. So in some ways the typology of Act 2 doesn't quite fit with my memories of all the activities that were going on or people were attempting to continue with in the 1980s 
and 1990s, although it's true those activities were getting defeated and defeated, so there wasn't much confidence around in that time, very little confidence. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a complete abandonment of ideas of equality, interest in the state, um, although I agree with Nancy that it's true that sometimes, uh, and particularly in the academy, and it, or in certain sections of the academy, the prioritising of difference could, could make it seem as though we weren't still all busy working around um, a whole lot of issues. And what came to the fore in the media, for instance, would be very important struggles, like struggles um, around, in, particularly with the drama of the HIV-AIDS crisis, then struggles around the recognition of the needs of, of uh, gay people or other particular groups were prominent, but I don't think they were prominent in a way that meant that such groups weren't supporting, for instance, the miners' strike in the 1980s or anything else that did come up. It's just that a lot of things were not coming up precisely because of those movements of capitalism that Nancy has described, and in particular, with the right in power in the USA, here and elsewhere, with then the deregulation of capital, and so the rise and rise of corporate capital, which actually gets a stranglehold on the state itself, as the Tories have been busy selling off um, uh, um, all of our resources. Labour, in its interregnum in power, did nothing to reverse that, seemed also um, uh, enthralled to Thatcherite and neoliberal policies. There's no evidence yet that uh, Labour has actually turned against us. They're still terrified of the idea that they can't manage the economy and make cuts as successfully as the Tories can. And so to turn around that um, rhetoric of private bad, sorry, that's my view, <laughs> private good, public bad, you know, and the whole idea of dependency, which Nancy and Linda Gordon and, and uh, in particular talk about as, as, as pathologise it to, to um, uh, be in any way dependent on the state, as if capital wasn't itself utterly dependent on the state, um, uh, was to be a type of individual pathology. So poor people uh, could be pathologised if they were in recipient of benefits. Other people being bailed out by the bankers, of course, could go on giving themselves the ever bigger bonuses they'd always given themselves. So it was the, the redistributive politics that was defeated again and again, making it harder for that area of feminism. And, and we feminists, who were, of course, aware of the destructive uh, aspects of neoliberalism, um, to uh, not be the ones who would be talked about ever in the papers. It was harder for socialist feminists to get any sort of voice. Other sorts of issues, whether around pornography or perhaps around violence, very important issues, but they were the ones that would be heard, and other issues were far less likely to be heard. So, yes, it's wonderful, as Nancy says, as I'm sure all of us here know, that there has been resistance to... Um, the mayhem that has been caused by this rise and rise of corporate capital, which, which has ho completely hollowed out democracy itself, such that, you know, if it's not owned by private capital, the French own our national resources or some other state owns our national resources. We've simply handed it out, you know, thrown it away to anybody who's prepared in some short-term way to give a bit of money to those who are uh, um, in government at the time. So there is... 
resistance. And, um, and feminism is certainly very much a part of that resistance because when you have mayhem and conflict, when you have rising um, uh, ethnic conflict and wars, there's always increased violence against women or, or, or the morbidities of gender come even more to the fore when men are losing their jobs. Then, of course, they're uh, <coughs> more forcefully and aggressively going to try and find other ways of asserting their um, masculinity. So, so I think, you know, it's, it's wonderful to think that now is a time when we are trying to resist. I'm not sure if Nancy's right in thinking that uh, Holiani, is that his name, is going to quite give the answers. I, I think she's right to say he talks about, you know, the predatory nature, the underside of the predatory nature of capital. It's not so much an underside, it's an overside, pretty obviously, at the moment, and she talks about the necessity of thinking again about caring work, which I think feminists all along have been thinking about, even those who have turned to theorising subjectivity and gone inwards, have used critical theory or used psychoanalysis to think about subjectivity, they still have been stressing how we only ever have any individuality through recognition from others, through our ties to others. And so a politics of recognition of the other and a politics of care has been sedimented together in much of feminist uh, thinking, including Judith Butler and other people's thinking, that I think um, does continue to keep these questions of um, uh, identity differences and recognition alongside uh, anti-capitalist struggles together on the table. I wish I could have the confidence I once had in the 1970s. I no longer have that, but um, uh, I can only say that there'll only be a future for you know, the majority of us, indeed, uh, perhaps for the world itself, if we are able to turn around in ways that have not yet been turned around at all, the um, mayhem that's been caused by the depredations of corporate capital at the moment. And for that, it seems to me, we have to be welcoming all our differences in relation to some radical left project that is also interested in power and interested in how you can... We are actually going to have to increase nation-states' willingness to stand up to the IMF and corporate capital, to stand up to their insistence on... Um, um, cutbacks and so on, although our government actually is way ahead of, uh, of the demands of, of uh, the IMF and wants to do more cutting and slash welfare and uh, squeeze the economy even more than uh, uh, they're being requested to do. And, you know, that tiny minority of people are still getting richer. So we have to, in every way we possibly can, work out how to join together to uh, think about different forms of state power and, of course, think about it in a global context. As Nancy says, we haven't at the moment got any global structures that are really going to be supportive of progressive national states, but that too needs to be on the agenda, how to uh, think globally at the same time as thinking radically progressively in terms of national politics. <laughs>